Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello and welcome to The Reset, a mental health podcast without all the bollocks. I'm Sam Delaney. My guest this week is the writer, historian and practical philosopher, Jules Evans. Jules has written a number of great books, one of which was the bestseller Philosophy for Life and Other Dangerous Situations, which was translated into numerous different languages and helped people all over the world use the ideas of ancient philosophy, especially Stoicism, to help them understand and cope better with everyday life. It really is a great book that demystifies philosophical ideas, makes them easy to understand and applicable to the realities of modern life. I think it's such a useful book and Jules really is a fascinating bloke. So I was very pleased that he agreed to come on The Reset and tell us more about his work. I hope you enjoy listening to our chat. Hello, Jules. Welcome to The Reset. Thank you, Sam. Uh, it's a pleasure to be speaking to you. Um, actually, do you know what? I'm going to start with what we've just been talking about off air. Uh, okay. I'm speaking to you to, just to set some context to our listeners. I'm speaking to you today um from i'm here in london you're in costa rica you've relocated to costa rica you live there now which is uh, fascinating to me because i'm aware that you've done so much research into different approaches to happiness wellness and and what have you and i'm very aware that costa rica very very often comes top in those polls or bits of research about the happiest places to live on earth coincidence or are you there as a result of all of your research no, I'm here as a coincidence. Uh, I I moved. I I came here for a few weeks uh, during the the winter of the pandemic because of a I didn't a kind of a housing situation. I didn't have anywhere to live at the time in the UK because uh, I was waiting for a house to come through. And I thought, well, I'll just go to Costa Rica for a few weeks. Uh, I stayed just because I liked it so much. Um, I I didn't know much about it. I, like you, had only come across it a bit through the kind of happiness research. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, so I didn't know much about it. I've been here three years. I'm now engaged to a Costa Rican uh, lady and we're building a house here. 
So we're making a life here. And I have been struck actually by certain kind of attitudes which are quite typical to Costa Ricans, which might, I mean, I, I haven't read the, the research, Sam, about why they they score so high on happiness mm. scores. But like, certainly my, my fiance has a very strong um, mindset, very, you know, she's in some ways a much harder life than I have. But she's, you know, she, she's very unself-pitying, uh, very much. And with her family as well, they appreciate small things. They'll just, that, you know, because it's very beautiful, Costa Rica. And it's very rich in, like, nature. Yeah. And you get blasé about that, but they don't. They'll go, look at that bird. What a beautiful bird. Or, oh, look at that sunset. Isn't that pretty? I'm so lucky to be a Costa Rican. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. So they really have a high appreciation for nature it's got, um, you know, sometimes when you travel in other countries, like, say, India or Colombia, you're struck by, like, rivers full of rubbish and plastic. Here, there's very little of that. They really take care of their natural resources. I mean, by which I mean, like, their, mm. na- their natural parks. 25% of the country is protected nature. So I think that's part of it. They really love nature. They really appreciate it. And they're thankful for little things. It does feel that some countries, some cultures put happiness of the people at the heart of what they do. And perhaps others put, for instance, you know, perhaps in the UK, it's like, well, actually, economic growth is is it, all the happiness will trickle down from that. I mean, I've, I've read before, I don't know if this is true, that they, they don't have a military in Costa Rica. They decided to reinvest all the money into environmental causes. That's true. Um, so they they have very good environmental policies. All their energy is renewables. They abolished the army after the civil war in the 40s. Yeah. Um, though they do, of course, have the benefit of the protection of the United States. Yeah. So if ever Nicaragua threatens to invade them, they can just call on their buddy. Yeah. Much that's, bigger that, that's handy. Yeah. Yeah. But they have a they they often say to each other, Pura Vida, uh, which, you know, is is the kind of Costa Rican tourist slogan as well. But they also always say to it, they often end sentences to each other or conversations. Okay, pura vida, pura vida. And it means pure life. Uh, and it's basically an ethos, which is like, you know, quality of life and, you know, enjoy life, mm. live well, which sounds like kind of ancient wisdom. Actually, they got it from a Mexican movie or possibly a TV <laughs> show in the 60s or something. Great. Well, that'll there do. The character was always saying, yeah, hey, pura vida. But anyway, <laughs> so they always they always you know, say this, and it is a kind of way of thinking. What I would also say is they're, they're a stable democracy. They're the most, touch wood, the most stable democracy in, in Latin America, really. Mm. Um, they've never had, you know, they, they, they had a very brief civil war in the 1940s, where only about a thousand people died. That's it, really. Uh, or ever since then, they've never had violent revolutions or like you know um, massacres or disappearances like a lot of Latin countries have. And they're really proud of that. They feel very mm. lucky not to live in. You know, they're surrounded by countries with really serious uh, political problems. Mm. So that's really helped their happiness. Now, unfortunately. Uh, Cartel violence is beginning to affect countries all over Latin America. And Costa Rica's had the worst year of violence in its history this year. Oh. So, you know, trouble in paradise, like, you know, you, you can't really totally isolate yourselves from the problems of the world. Like they um 
So so that that is a concern. But it it's it's it also doesn't have the inequality that when you go to somewhere like Colombia um, or other kind of Latin countries, you have an elite. Same with Mexico, who are extremely rich, and then you have uh, other bits of the population who are extremely poor. Costa Rica's got a much kind of bigger middle class, and it mm. doesn't have those extremes of inequality. So everyone's kind of proud to be Costa Rican and has this feeling like they can make something of their life. Mm-hmm. There's not that fear of an underclass or resentment of an of an oligarch class, mm. which you get in other Latin countries. And I also believe that it's one of the healthiest countries in the world. Pretty sure I read they had like the longest life expectancy because they, they yeah. eat so well. Yeah, it's funny. They uh there's a bit of it, the Nicoya Peninsula, which is a blue zone, which I I a blue zone means I think on average they live over a hundred. They mm. live to over a hundred. So I certainly am healthier since I moved here because of thanks to my fiance. Like they, they just cook a lot of salad. They have a lot of fruit here. Mm. So like you know, a lot of fruit juices, uh, a lot of rice. I don't know how healthy that is, but there's a lot of rice here. Rice is almost like a sacrament here. Um, and yeah, so they 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 pretty healthy as well. Yeah, you don't see anyone ever smoking here. It's very different to like Mexico or Colombia. Mm. Um, so and there's very outdoors life. They're you know they love uh, walking bicycling which is pretty rare in latin america you see them in their kind of light cruise bicycling along yeah. the road surfing and they love animals here like my my fiance's family her grandmother has like 10 rescue dogs uh and my my fiance just called me because she was driving on the motorway and she passed a dog looked really scared to cross the road so she turned around to try and find it and kind of rescue it and couldn't find it and you know so they're like that they're like yeah yeah they really care about animals good for the soul isn't it that's good for the soul um well it just sounds wonderful i've always had a fascination and so when i spoke to you someone who i regard as a sort of an expert in happiness and found that and you said that you're in costa rica i thought oh this makes sense i've never been there but now now listening to you speak about i'm more determined than ever to visit um Listen, it's great to have you here on The Reset, not just for that wonderful bit of uh, info about uh, how incredible a place Costa Rica is. I wanted to talk to you about all the different fascinating subjects you've written about over the years. Um, But I wanted to start a bit about your own story, because when I, um, you know, uh, read your books or um, anything done, you often make reference to the fact that what you, you know, first sort of got you interested in this kind of subject area was you went through your own crisis when you were younger which led you to cbt which then led on to other things so can you tell us a bit about that backstory sure uh in brief uh i and my friends were experimenting with psychedelic drugs uh when we were teenagers uh i was smoking uh cannabis when i was 13 i first tried lsd when i was 15 16 i was uh trying mdma um, magic mushrooms things like that having uh initially very fun experiences like just really enjoying smoking cannabis having that kind of giggly first phase of it and an amazing psychedelic experiences as well plus amazing experiences at raves but then um i and my friends all started experiencing some of the 
the bad effects of, of of drugs and psychedelic drugs. I mean, first of all, I would say I was probably dependent on cannabis by the time I was 18. I was smoking it every day and it was beginning to string me out. Um, then I had a, um, a bad trip on LSD when I was 18. Um, just uh, felt, felt quite kind of very frightened, somewhat traumatized. Um, and I think that's that happens to people. People sometimes have bad psychedelic experiences. And for a few people, that develops into long-term difficulties. And that's what happened with me, maybe because I didn't speak to anyone about it. I didn't know who I could speak to about it. Not my parents. I didn't want to tell them I'd been doing drugs. My best friends were away at the time. Um, so, yeah, and, and this was in 95. There was much less conversation about mental health and mental illness then, especially for men. So I didn't talk about it. I buried it. And I thought that I I kind of shaken it off. I was I was pretty unwell for a few weeks, you know, but I thought I'd shaken it off. But the problems came back during university um, in the form of things like panic attacks, nightmares, um, dissociation, mood swings, social anxiety, particularly. Uh, and 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 just this feeling of like I'm not the person I was before something bad has happened to me and it's changed me and I can't figure it out and I can't figure out how to get better mm. so that happened all the way through university by the end of university I kind of had a mini breakdown finally told my parents um, they sent me to a therapist who said this just sounds like teenage angst here is some beta blockers went to another uh, psychiatrist who said Oh, I think you've got post-traumatic stress and social anxiety from these drug experiences. Don't worry, I can cure you in two sessions um, with uh, using EMDR, eye movement desensitization reprocessing, I think it is, mm. where you wave, the, the psychiatrist said, I'll just wave my fingers in front of your eyes while you think about the traumatic experience, and this will help you process it. Which I think actually that amazingly does work for some people but it didn't work for me. Um, so it was just, it was really frightening, Sam, because, you know, I'm now research people who have difficult psychedelic experiences. And what it's like when you're 18, is just like that you have zero access to information about it. Um, and, you, and you're really frightened that you've done something permanent to your brain and to your character and to your life. Like you've permanently damaged yourself and that's it. You've blown your life. You're 18. Mm. You had all these expectations about what your life's going to be like, but that's it. You've damaged yourself and your life's going to be miserable from now on. So that's what I was really afraid of. And I was really trying to figure it out, like how to get better. Um, but I didn't really know where to turn. I, I, I remember when I was, I mean, this lasted from like 18 to 24. Um, so I remember I went to the British library and just like, took out the, the books of Sigmund Freud to try and understand how to heal myself because he was the only psychologist I'd heard of. And I was like, you know, somewhat depressed at the start of that and miserable by the end of it because his <laughs> books had such a depressing view of human nature. So it was hard. As you said, finally, I, um, I found a CBT support group for people who suffered from social anxiety. And that was the beginning of getting better. But it, it took a long time. Um. With psychedelic episodes, bad trips, you know, there there is a, you know, a fear like the one you had, which is it's more than just a traumatic emotional experience. 
I guess, you know, seeing things or thinking thoughts or going through such intense fear that it's hard to bounce back. But it actually makes, you know, a physical impact on your brain, you know, and, and that something right. something is and, – and is that what you were worried about? And is there any truth in that? Um, that was what I was worried about. I mean, I didn't know if it was like permanently damaging my brain neurologically mm. or permanent damage through trauma. Yeah. I wasn't quite sure, but the fear was it was permanent damage. Yeah. Uh, and I was quite resistant to taking antidepressants in a way that I wouldn't necessarily be now, mm. but I was at the time. Uh, uh, um, the fact is that we don't fully know uh, much about, you know, we don't know enough about the harms and the long-term harms for psychedelics yet. For example, um, a small minority of people who take psychedelics have continued visual distortions after taking them. This is called hallucination persistent perception disorder, HPPD. And that may be neurological. Um, I think in my case, luckily it turned out not to be permanent, but I don't know if that was because I found some kind of deeper meaning uh, and arrived at some insights or maybe my brain healed itself. Probably it's a bit of both. In other words, you can't necessarily divide the psychological from the neurological. These things are closely connected. Tell me a bit about the social anxiety. How bad was it? How did it manifest itself? Well, I'd been very confident for the first 18 years of my life and very social. And my identity had been very defined around that. I loved showing off, you know, just just having, you know, having uh, status was very important to me. I then became much more uh, anxious because I was having panic attacks, particularly in social situations. And you wouldn't know when a panic attack would happen. So I became more insecure and more worried about what other people were thinking about me, how I was coming across. Was I like as funny as I used to be? You know what I mean? And so basically, I, I suppose I went from a kind of positive narcissist to a neurotic narcissist. Mm. Um, and that turned into a bit of a loop where I became more anxious and then people would react to me like, why are you so stressed or whatever? Do you know what I mean? That kind yeah. of thing. So my confidence went lower and lower because once you get into those kind of mind games, there's not necessarily a bottom to it. You know, it's like if you forget how to play, you know, if you lose confidence in a sport, for example, like in tennis or football, you can really, your confidence can spiral to the point where you can't hit a normal shot, you know? Yeah. So it was like that. And it got to the point where I remember in my first job, I mean, when I was like 22, I was, my confidence was so low. I felt like kind of bullied by people in my, in my office because I, because I think I was so stressed and awkward. Um, and I was like, wow, I've, I've got to this point where I was, I was very, a very confident, dominant personality. And now I'm like, being bullied in the office because I'm so, you know, I was like, wow, things have really changed, you know, mm. in terms of one status position, which I appreciate having gone through now. But at the time, it was just extremely humiliating, you know. So it was like that. I wasn't able to have a relationship until I was a stable relationship, really, until I was like in my 30s. So it really affected my ability to be intimate with other people, to relate to them, to trust other people. It led to me being very, feeling very closed and defensive. And CBT, um, 
from what I know of it, is was was like a gift, I guess, because in terms of spiraling thoughts or destructive patterns that you just can't find your way out of, isn't that what CBT is almost like specialises in combating? Yeah, I had had an insight um, before I before CBT through a kind of uh, through a near death experience, which I won't go into because we've got limited time. But if people Google it, they can find out me writing about it. But I'd had a near death experience, which had given me this sense that what was causing my suffering was not my neurochemistry, but my own beliefs. My strong belief, I've permanently damaged myself and there's nothing I can do about it. And I thought, oh, maybe it's that belief that's causing my suffering. The belief that you're permanently screwed. Um, And after that experience, I knew that CBT was based on the idea that it's your beliefs that cause you suffering. Uh, It's your perspective, your thoughts. So CBT helped me to realize that and gave me a kind of systematic way to change my old neurotic beliefs and to to habituate more self-accepting beliefs. Things like before I would have thought processes like everyone must accept me and if they don't, it's a catastrophe. Like you're only worth what other people think of you. Those kinds of paranoid neurotic beliefs. And I learned to shift to dip wiser kind of beliefs. Like I would prefer if other people like me, but it's not a catastrophe if some people don't. Mm. Like I can accept myself even if other people don't. I mean, pretty basic stuff, Sam, but like that's how basic it was. It was learning. I had these automatic negative kind of ways of thinking, like everyone must accept me. Um, Everyone must like me. And I learned to be aware of that and to change those automatic beliefs to the kind of wiser ways of thinking that probably most people have naturally, but I had to learn them. And uh, so, so yeah. the, once you'd learned about the, the, the benefits and the power of CBT, you, you looked further into, into its roots and that's what, what led you to sort of examine philosophy more closely, right? Yeah, I went to, um, I was working as a journalist, I am still a journalist, and I went to interview the people who invented CBT, two psychologists, one called um, Aaron Beck, and one called Albert Ellis, both American, they both invented cognitive therapy in the 50s and 60s, they they had different types of cognitive therapy, but they were quite similar. Um. And I, they both told me they'd been inspired by ancient Greek philosophy, particularly Stoic philosophy, uh, which was invented in 300 BC in Athens. And the Stoics were sort of like the Buddhists of Europe. Um, they said, we have a, a kind of therapeutic philosophy. And if you follow Stoicism, it will, it will cure you of emotional disturbance and give you a kind of indestructible happiness. This was their promise. They're called the Stoics because they they taught in Athens under a thing called the Stoa Poikile, which, is, um, which means the painted colonnade. So this was a kind of arcade in Athens and they taught there to whoever wanted to listen to them, men, women, slaves, free people, rich, poor. Uh, it was a kind of street philosophy. And the essence of Stoicism is basically um, 
in the words of a philosopher called Epictetus, um, what disturbs you is not events, but your opinion about events. The same thing can happen to two people and it'll affect them very differently emotionally. One will go, well, that that sucks, but they'll be able to cope with it. The other one, they might shatter like a plate of glass. Why these two different outcomes? The Stoics say it's because of their perspective, the, their perspective on it, the story they tell themselves about what happens. That's um, in CBT and in psychology, that's called the cognitive theory of the emotions, which is that our emotions happen to us um, through our perspective and our thoughts and our often automatic thoughts about what happens to us. In CBT, they talk about your self-talk, this inner monologue, which you're not often aware of, but which is interpreting everything that happens to you. Um, once you realize the fundamental role of your automatic thoughts and emo uh, in, in, in creating your emotional reality, once you're aware of that, you can hold your automatic thoughts up to the light and say, is that definitely wise or true or accurate? Do I have to think about this this way? Is there another way I could think about it? And if you choose a different perspective, that will change how you feel in your body. In psychology, this is called cognitive reappraisal. It's very human. We all do it all the time. It's hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. A basic human thing. Your, you know, your son is deeply upset because they didn't get an invite to a birthday party. And you can say, well, you know, Maybe maybe you haven't been invited yet or, well, it doesn't matter. You don't have to be invited to every party. You know, like we all have different, you know, people we get on well with, people we don't get on so well with. That's you teaching your son cognitive reappraisal, which is thinking about how to see a situation and how that can change how they feel. So Stoics just defined this and, and kind of told humans about this almost, you know, in a very clear, for the first time, hey, this is how to control your emotions. What's interesting is, I don't know if you, you know, you come across, maybe you, you're very into the Stoics already, Sam, and I'm I'm preaching to the court. No, no, I'm, I'm fascinated by them, but I'm no expert. Because uh, some of your listeners will might think, like, they've heard of Stoic. And like, to be Stoic, they might think, oh, he's a very Stoic man. They might think that that means burying your emotions, hiding them. Mm. Like, you know, the strong, silent type. That's like small less stoic. That's what it's come to mean in our culture. But capital S stoic, like the ancient philosophers, they did. They talked about their emotions all the time. 
Yeah. Always. They, and they actually were fascinated by how emotions arise and how we can transform them, not bury them, but actually understand the mechanics of emotion. Um, so that's I, I'm just going to tell you three of their key ideas. That's one that uh, it's not events, but your perspective about events that causes you suffering. Change your perspective and you change your emotions. The second key idea is we can't control everything that happens to us, but we can control how we think about it. Mm, mm. Uh, that's a similar, which, kind which, of which is actually like a, a sort of a better, you know, as someone in recovery, it's like also a bedrock of, of recovery of 12 step recovery thinking. It's almost like in, in the serenity prayer. So it's, it's lovely how all of these things come back to, to that one idea. Absolutely. What are they, what is the serenity prayer prayer? Like, uh, give me the courage to change the things I can yeah, the, the, uh, the serenity to change the things I can't and the wisdom to know the difference. Right. That's that's very much in line with kind of stoic wisdom, like Epictetus, who I keep, I keep mentioning him. He was a slave in the Roman Empire, but he was freed and became the greatest philosopher of his day. And he taught his students, you know, he had the kind of the elite of Roman society to come and study from this former slave. And he would constantly teach his students that the key to resilience is knowing what you control and what you don't. Mm. And that the only things in life that we have complete control over, he said, is our own, our ability to choose our perspective in life. And that we have to accept the limit of our control over external things, including our reputation, our body, our finances, um, our the weather, our society, we have some control over them, but not complete control. We're not God. Uh, and one, you know, so a lot of the stuff in life, you have to, you know, it, it helps practically. Uh, I, I, I don't have complete control over that. So for now, I have to accept it. And the third and final thing that um, I got from the Stoics and also from CBT was the importance of habits, that we are on the whole automatic habitual creatures. And so there's two things you have to do to change yourself. The first is make your automatic habits conscious. Like for me, my automatic habit of people pleasing and very much looking to other people for my sense of self-worth. But the second thing we need to do is take our wise new insights and make them automatic and habitual through practice. So, um, you know, uh, there's a, Somewhat, there's a philosophy, a philosophy who wrote about Aristotle, about Aristotelian philosophy, the Greek philosopher Aristotle. And this um, uh, modern philosopher says, we are what we habitually do. So philosophy is not an act, but a habit. Um, you know, Epictetus is constantly saying, practice, practice, constantly practice, build up habits, count the number of days when you manage not to lose your temper, count the number of days you manage not to have a drink. Uh, celebrate these th your progress. So it's, you know, and he says, you may be great at philosophy in the classroom, but go, go out into the street and you're hopeless. Mm. So you need to practice all the time. So philosophy is not just a classroom thing. It's how do you, how do you behave in the street when uh, someone is rude to you or on social media or when you get some bad news? He said, Epictetus said, difficulties are what show people's character. So when something really tough happens to you, think that God has sent you a, a good sparring partner to yeah. practice boxing with. They were very into wrestling metaphors, Stoics. That's why I think yeah. sometimes 
popular with men today so, yeah. and gladiator metaphors and yeah things. yeah so those yeah. are just the three kind of really basic insights that i think and i don't know they're not you can argue with them i mean they might not be true in all situations uh and we can talk about that but they're actually still i found them really useful and i was really into stoicism all through that they basically really helped me to come out of that very difficult decade mm. and it's a practical application as well cbt see i never knew till i read your work that there was the link between CBT. i was aware of stoicism i was a fan of what i'd read i knew that a lot of people found it useful i was an expert and i knew about cbt because i'd done a bit of it as part of just wider therapy um I never knew there was a connection. And what's really interesting is that the cynical point of view on all philosophy is that it's impractical. It's an impractical study of something that's, you know, large and conceptual. And in actual fact, so many people now, in fact, you know, in, in many ways, you would have been a, a reasonably early adopter because even CBT's only become very well known to people in the, the last sort of maybe 15 years or something. Um, yeah uh and you know and and the, the the truth is is that people are actually using philosophy ancient philosophy in in the most practical way on a yeah. daily basis to feel better about the problems that they've or the struggles they've had in their life that's right um ancient philosophy was incredibly practical i only discovered it in my 20s i couldn't believe it reading these ancient greeks and particularly the kind of roman stoics in translation I couldn't believe how practical it was. Mm. Uh, and I mean, Marcus Aurelius, he was the emperor of Rome and he was also a Stoic. And he, he wrote a journal called, you know, which is being published as the Meditations of Marcus Aurelius. Mm. Uh, and that's that is like a it's 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 like a, been a bestseller in so many countries around the world for the last 30 years. And, and it's always been kind of popular as well, but it's really popular. And, and you know, during the pandemic, during the lockdowns, it was like, you know, in the top 10. And it's so practical and useful to read. And this is, you know, for the ancients, you know, in the ancient world, um, philosophy was a way of life. And it was a therapy for the soul. The word therapy comes from the ancient Greek, meaning care of the soul. They didn't have therapists that you paid to go and see. Instead, it was a kind of practical care of the soul. You might have philosophers who to teach you you'd have philosophy friends that you would check in with and write letters to and and, and help each other mm. with uh, and then you practice it yourself you might have a journal you might have your certain kind of books that you always go back to they would have little handbooks where they would write maxims and they carry that around and, and remember them and memorize them and you know it's similar to to, to 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 buddhism buddhism has incredible practical wisdom the difference is in the ancient world buddhism was more for monks whilst mm. the stoics were like emperors politicians slaves they they they, they weren't a monastic for everyone yeah mm. and yeah. and you know to take it into like the here and now so your your book philosophy for life and the London Philosophy Club, which you've you know been been so heavily involved in, and and you write in your book about things like the the pub philosophy movement, which I didn't know was Liverpool was the sort of capital of, and and I was thinking all this stuff's so wonderful, but philosophy still has a brand problem in in the minds in the perceptions of many people. Uh, they think it's f for intellectuals, 
um uh it's not for everyone you know it's like there used to be gags about philosophy degrees didn't there at, at university and stuff right yeah and yeah. and so i guess my question is you've done a lot of work to kind of i don't know what the word would be make make philosophy accessible democratize yeah. philosophy yeah how, how can we continue to do that and make it sort of demystify for like anyone because yeah. obviously there is so much to be gained from it and in a yeah. world where there is a mental health crisis and certainly here i don't know what it's like in costa rica there's there's very little there's not enough resource in terms of therapy or anything else to keep up with it yeah. what you're espousing here is is something that you know is in every library and and not even a library you can find it all online for free you can yeah you can you can get it for free um uh, i would say uh is I mean, yeah, like this is um, the, the easiest thing you could do is not be afraid of it and give it a try and like download like Marcus Aurelius's meditations or Epictetus's discourses. I have done sessions and workshops on on ancient philosophy everywhere you can possibly imagine. Um, I taught a philosophy course to to, to uh, people life life you know imprisoned for life in Glasgow. And I went to this um, to this group. They have a philosophy club there in Lomos Prison. And I remember I went in the first session, and this guy said to me, "I just want to know, like, are you a real Stoic? Because I'm a real, you know." So right. <laughs> they love they love Stoicism because you can't imagine, you know, like a lot of the Stoics they they were imprisoned themselves. Yeah. And Stoicism helped them when they could control nothing about their external environment. So so people in prison absolutely love it. But I also. I mean, I, I ran a philosophy club um, at, at Saracens Rugby Club to a lot of the the, the players who are now, um, you know, now in France in the World Cup, like Owen Farrell and Jamie George and Mario Toja. They used to come, you know, a lot of sports people love stoicism as well. Mm. Like um, the NFL, I taught a session at Arsenal. Um, but, so you know, it, every kind of place you can imagine. It's so simple. I, I explained the basics just now in like two minutes yeah, absolutely it's so simple and straightforward it's easy to read and and like what would you prefer would you prefer some kind of johnny come lately self-help teacher yeah and he's basically cashing in on on warmed up stoicism uh two thousand years later go go to the original source which is free yeah and, and learn learn from learn from the you know the foundation of western culture but, but i but perhaps it needs more people like you who are able to, I mean, you know, I'm, so I'm sitting here thinking, I wonder if it would be good. How young can, could, could you get people? So have you, have you spoken to children about this, you know, and like, yeah. don't, don't we need someone who can communicate those ideas? Like perhaps the way you just communicated it to me is not the way that it's necessarily communicated at the source. Yeah, no, you're right. I mean, and there are great popularizers like who had more pop, you know, success and popularity than I have. Two I would mention. Uh, one is an American called Ryan Holiday. He wrote a book called The Obstacle is the Way, and he now runs something called The Daily Stoic. I mean, oh, yeah. he's and that's been massively successful. The other, you know, back in the day was Alan de Botton. Yeah. Um, he set up this thing called The School of Life, yeah. which was like a kind of they do philosophy courses, but they have a lot of really good videos on YouTube. But you're right. Stoicism for kids or just philosophy for kids. There are um, there are people who run philosophy clubs at schools and for children, but it's more like 
uh, open discussion like hey what is nothing or what oh, what yeah. happens to the edge of the universe which kids kind of love but it's it's not quite the same as like practical techniques for managing your emotions yeah um so i think there is kind of room if someone were ever wanted to do like a stoicism for kids book about i don't know a little you know puppet socrates or an animation or something like that i don't think someone's done that yet so stoicism mm. has become huge now i mean when well, i some got of the tech the tech the tech bros are into it as well aren't they and, yeah, and yeah, the bezos yeah, yeah, and are. musks which probably disappoints yeah. you somewhat <laughs> no, I'm not are a, they a I'm great not... ad for it i don't i don't mind like yeah. I, I I more mind about ordinary people having some access. I'm not a purist. I don't care. Like I don't yeah. care if people become a, a full on stoic or if they just come across one or two ideas. Mm. Um, but it, there's still, you know, so I, I, I organized a gathering of stoics in 2010. Like there were 10 people there. I remember telling my friends we're going, I'm going to a stoic gathering. They thought it was extremely eccentric. Like what are you going to be wearing togas and that kind of thing? Now it's very common. There's so many podcast books about it. Yeah, it's become, yeah. It's really had a huge revival. But it, but but I think there's there's stuff that hasn't been done really. I think there's mm. there's, there's more that could be done. The fact that so many people still don't realize the connection with CBT. Yeah, I think yeah. very interesting. Um, um, I uh, I I the word stoic. My first I remember what how I understood it for many years was because. As a football fan, I used to occasionally hear football commentators saying some real stoic defending here by the away team, <laughs> right? And stoic defending was a <laughs> phrase that I knew and I would reuse myself whilst I was either playing football or playing Sabutio or playing a football video game. <laughs> I'd go, ah, oh, stoic defending, right? But I never knew what it meant. Um, and actually, it, it's kind of a, a, a misappropriation, like you said earlier, because it kind of gave you this sense of being... It's almost was like a byword for being a bit kind of austere or parsimonious. Do you know what I mean? Like, ah, yeah. oh, giving nothing away whatsoever, being sort of <laughs> stern-faced and mean, right? That that was, and and yeah. obviously, as you've explained, and as I came to know, that wasn't quite what what Stoic was. I suppose it was like people kind of, I don't know. I suppose it made some sense. But then I met this guy. I was writing a book about political advertising. I met this guy called Jeremy Scott, who's this kind of guy who was sort of literally like a 60s playboy, like you saw in, you know, The Persuaders or The Saint or something like that. I don't, And and I, I interviewed him for a book about political advertising because he'd had this really eclectic career doing all sorts of different things. But at one point in the 60s, he'd been an ad man and he'd produced commercials. And... Um, he had some amazing stories and I went to interview him in Chelsea and he was, you know, it was like interviewing Roger Moore, really, both in I'm, terms I'm, of the way I'm, he looked. I, Have I, you I met him? As well, yeah. Right, yeah. I, and I, 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 I would track down I, anyone who's into stoicism. Yeah, I bet. And I knew nothing about it until I met him. And I wasn't interviewing him about anything like that. I basically wanted anecdotes from him about when he made yeah. some political ads for Edward Heath in the in 1970. Which, by the way, you may or may not know, is he actually laced the canapes at the pre-production meeting with speed, right? And um, he spit, the, the, he'd been told by his bosses to liven up the t the team because Edward Heath was leader of the, the the opposition. He said the last meeting he was really boring. Let's get him and his researchers more animated. So he sprinkled a little bit of speed on all of the sandwiches that he laid out, 
And Edward Heath had a huge appetite and ate about 10 of these sandwiches. And by the end of the meeting, they couldn't get him to leave the room. And he was wanted to brainstorm how they were going to like rebuild the NHS and whatnot. Right. So it's a great story. But but then I'm like, I was really taken by this guy. And I thought, what an extraordinary life this guy's had. And he, and then we just got talking and he said, yeah, I lost it all. But in the end, I, I lost, I lost every penny I'd ever made. And I and I lost my wife and everything. And I said, "How did you bounce back from that?" And he went, "Ah, Marcus Aurelius." And he talked me through it just in this pub one afternoon. And that yeah. was how I became a little bit more curious, or at least I started to understand the difference between the football commentators' use of the word "stoic" and the reality of it, sort of thing. Yeah. yeah so yeah. it's uh, it's interesting yeah, I, the, the way that you is. encounter these things. You're absolutely right, and you come across before the internet you would always have some people who would just randomly come across Marcus Aurelius or Epictetus or Seneca, and it would help them through one of the worst periods of their life. Like, like this comedian, Adrian Edmondson. Well, yeah. And he gave, he gave you a great shout out on desert Island this recently. That was amazing. Yeah. Cause that was like, you know, 11 years after my book came out, it was fantastic. But I mean, like particularly he was helped by stoicism. Right. Mm. Um, after because he was depressed after rick mail died um so there's so many stories like that people who come across you know by accident sometimes marcus aurelius or seneca or epictetus and it it like massively helps them massively helps them through the worst time of their life but they would never really talk about it you know so they they would just be something that like like you know if you happen to speak to in the pub so what helps you they'd say oh well marcus aurelius what's happened in the last 10 years is is through the internet these these secret stoics have been finding each other and i've been like i also like um when i was 30 or so i would track these people down so i go to interview jeremy in chelsea or mm. or this bloke in a in a prison or or this sports person or like john lloyd who wrote blackadder he's another right. one right okay he, he was he was helped by marcus aurelius and i would interview them and so these 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 people would suddenly you know gradually link together and then they'd be you know stoic chat rooms and that kind of thing right there's you know but it's funny there's never been like a clinical trial of marcus aurelius and this is this is is a free intervention which some people credit with helping them through the darkest period what's fascinating you say that there's not been a clinical trial is there has been a clinical trial of things with a lot less kind of anecdotal basis than well actually you're right and things that seem a lot more frivolous for a university to devote quite a lot of research and time to in all honesty and so it does seem interesting that this could be such a massive and free tool which the government are currently very very interested in looking for free ways of of treating people with mental health struggles yeah you're absolutely right um but well i should say there have of course been a lot of clinical trials about of cognitive behavioral therapy that's true and yeah. the government the government's put in like hundreds of millions into cbt uh on the nhs yeah um but but that yeah, does it, usually it, it, come it, it, with a cost of a, of a of a cbt therapist on the whole yeah. you don't need that but no, you do but but, people, but on the whole you get referred to a, a therapist who specializes in cbt yeah, and maybe the point before in, that while you're waiting for your six-month waiting list is to pick up a a book uh, you know, by one of the Stoics or perhaps even your book and kind of yeah, start yeah, yeah. engaging with those ideas. I agree. I agree. We, uh, I met some uh, some other academics in 2013 
and we had like the smallest grant ever. I think it was like uh, five grand. And we started um, something called Modern Stoicism with this. We brought out a collection of essays. We organized the first Stoic, big Stoic conference. Yeah. It's called Stoicon right. in 2013. It's happened every year since then. But that that had a massive impact. I mean, there's some people who are still very involved with it. I'm not so involved with the modern Stoicism movement now, but there there are there are some people who are. And I think of that and I think, wow, that impact, that was like five grand. Yeah. And that like had, you know, thousands of people come to our conferences. They provided, they do like free online courses, you know, so much media coverage. And and I think of like some academic programs that get millions. And like don't have any impact at all. But that's that's the power of stoicism. I think mm. it's just it's you know it's, I don't think it's a perfect philosophy, uh, and I'm not I don't consider myself a stoic anymore. But it's got a few very good basic ideas. Jules, it's been a absolute pleasure listening to you. I could look, I could listen to you all day. I really really appreciate your time all the way from Costa Rica. I will put links to uh, your book or your books in the in the show notes along with this um, with this podcast. And who knows, I might even put some links into uh, some some of the other books you mentioned as well, some of the classic texts. Um, and I wish you all the best out there on your Costa Rican life. It sounds wonderful, and I'm very jealous, as I'm sure everyone else listening is. Thanks, Sam. Well, uh, now you've got a you know a reason to visit as well. Like when you come over. Let me know. I will. I'll look you up. Careful what you wish for. (laughs) Nice one. All the best, Jules. Thank you. Cheers, Sam. That was Jules Evans, a fascinating bloke who I could listen to for hours. I've included links to buy his books and find out more about all of his other work in the show notes. Thanks for listening as always. And please remember to subscribe to The Reset, if you don't already, at sandelaney.substack.com. Until next time, gang, be lucky. And don't let the dickheads get you down. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. 
Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm -hmm. 